Welcome back. We are now going to begin part two of our two-part series on own the bone and fragility fractures and the care of osteoporotic and osteopenic patients of all ages. Chris, I want to follow up with what you, one of your comments earlier, because I'm a hand surgeon and I take care of a lot of kids and it gets to the point of what do you do? And I'll say little Johnny specifically as a little boy who does have say a right forearm fracture, a left forearm fracture, and maybe a distal fibula fracture. And all of those can be explained as Alexander suggested by the mechanism, but it's not uncommon that families have questions. And so does every child with two or more fractures in a you know short span deserve a DEXA scan? And while I realize we all have institutional differences, who does DEXA scans? Who does them in the community? I guess, again, each institution may be different. Well, what are some general principles about how to seek out help, especially in the pediatric population? I think in the adult population, it's a little more straightforward. Yeah, that, that's really a great question because everyone doesn't have access to the reference normals for pediatric. In our community, we don't. So we do have an osteoporosis program, but we, I don't. I wouldn't order pediatric DEXA scan in my community because we don't have the reference normals. But if I had a high suspicion, I'd probably refer them to up to Hopkins or Children's Endocrinologist. However, I would do some screening tests for secondary osteoporosis in our in my practice. So for example, common things like vitamin D deficiency, super common, something that you can actually fix. Celiac disease, I mentioned, we check a CBC and basic metabolic panel to look for renal disease. And if we find those things, then we refer them on. And then the medical history and the family history. Is there a history of osteogenesis imperfecta? Is there interest in a history of metabolic disease? Are they their medical education list? If they are taking glucocorticoids, if they have asthma, if they have other medical problems, those kids I would refer to a university center where they have the reference normals for DEXA. But like I mentioned that the DEXA in itself and kids isn't the be all end all, it's just one tool combined with everything else for the diagnosis, which is a little bit different than adults. Thank you. That's very helpful. And if I could expand on that, I think also the idea of what Chris mentioned, thinking of the secondary processes, inflammatory bowel disease is another big one that is associated with secondary osteoporosis. And in terms of the DEXA, the reason that the DEXA is not the be-all to end-all for the diagnosis in children is these reference normals that Chris mentioned. So you have to account for the size of the person, the pubertal maturation of the person, and those things if not accounted for, give you a very artificial read on the DEXA scan. So you can't just pop your kid on the adult DEXA scanner and use the adult software to make a diagnosis. So it's really important, uh, as Chris mentioned, that they get referred to the appropriate center. I like the point about inflammatory bowel disease. And certainly I think most of us are aware of that. And I don't want to get too much in the weeds. And I apologize if I am, but is that really related to steroids and, and regular prednisone intake, or is it the inflammatory bowel disease and malabsorption, or is it a combination, I would guess? It's both. But the disease itself, along with many other autoimmune diseases, is a, a problem for bone health. And then when you add the treatment medications, you compound the issue. One thing that's really nice about looking for causes of secondary osteoporosis is a kind of, I want to say, like an optimistic thing because those are problems you can solve. So for example, if you find someone has celiac disease and then you address it, they can rebound and regain their bone mass. Same thing if someone has a vitamin D deficiency and if you correct that, if you correct their calcium insufficiency, you can really improve their, their bone density and their bone health. And I might just put in a plug also for something we're doing here at the University of Wisconsin. We regularly get DEXA scans on our athletes. 
And, uh, you know, we're looking for issues before injuries occur. So those who have DEXA scans that are outside of the range of normal, we will perform a more robust workup to look for things like Chris mentioned, like a vitamin D deficiency. But then I think also looking forward to the future, I think this type of research in looking at uh, young, otherwise healthy athletic adolescents and young 20-somethings, it will help us gain some of their, those more normal values that Tammy was mentioning we are lacking in the more pediatric and younger population. Tammy, do you want to expand on that anymore? Sure. I just completed a study actually using the tibial scans acquired on DEXA on our cross country and middle long distance runners to see whether we could get better parameters from the tibial geometry. So the width of the bone and the cortical thickness that we can derive from the tibial DEXA scans, and they're more predictive for us than the whole body uh, bone mineral density. So we're working on trying to come up with an algorithmic approach to identify that high level athlete at risk that we might be able to, you know, minimize their stress fracture incidents over the course of the season. So if a young athlete is of a a high risk for a stress fracture, whether it be tibial or metatarsal or wherever, just explain for my uh, non-expert education, what's the difference between a stress fracture and a stress reaction? And does every patient require an MRI to make a diagnosis? Obviously, if there's an obvious x-ray finding, maybe not. But just tell us how you think about the workup. And maybe I'll turn to Chris for this. The workup, formalizing a diagnosis, and how what you think about for treatment as a first step. Well, it's interesting. So stress fracture and stress reaction are really a continuum based on MRI findings. So a stress reaction, you could see radiographic periosteal bone, and that would be considered, I think, um, evidence of healing of a stress fracture, even if they don't see a fracture line. But stress reaction is really bone marrow edema pattern on the MRI. And I actually have a pet peeve about this because a lot of times the radiologist might read the scan and call it stress reaction, but there can be a lot of different things that cause bone marrow edema. So sometimes a person gets kind of lost on the wrong, they're actually not a stress fracture, stress reaction, which is a, could be a precursor you think of as stress fracture. It could be uh, many other things, but it's a term that's considered pre-stress fracture. And then what would I do for the workup about it? So as a sports doctor, the things we talked about before, so talking about the biomechanics of that person's sport, correcting that, talking about their nutrition, whether it be calories, vitamin D um, and calcium intake, talk about their training surface, their equipment, and then think about their bone quality. And that typically doesn't require a DEXA scan um, or a high level bone density test, unless it's a repeated thing or something that just doesn't get better. So if someone has one stress fracture, I don't usually order a DEXA scan, but I don't even order always um, the blood work, but if it's something that's suspicious, so a 12 year old with a sacral stress fracture that I mentioned that that was kind of suspicious that looked like an old lady fracture. So I wanted to look into it further and I couldn't explain it with other things because she had increased her training. She hadn't changed her shoes. There wasn't a good other explanation for it. So I looked into it further. So, but you could argue that every patient that has a stress fracture, you might consider checking their vitamin D and calcium because it's so common that it's low and you could correct that. Oh, I would love to piggyback on the vitamin yeah. D thing. Um, <laughs> Go for it. Living in the Northern half of the country. A few years ago, one of our partners who is also a team physician for our Badger athletic teams 
decided to do a study actually doing vitamin D levels on every incoming freshman. And we had to stop the study because it was sort of a safety issue because we realized that they all were vitamin D deficient and they all had to just take vitamin D. So it's now our standard to just give them the vitamin D. They either practice indoors too much or they don't get enough sun because we live in Wisconsin where there is only sun for four months and the rest of the year, it's too cold to be outside. We're just coming into the time when we can be outdoors now, but it's not enough to carry you over for the rest of the year. So we actually supplement all of our incoming athletes. And as Chris mentioned, that's a little bit controversial to supplement everybody, but most people provide the recommendation to anybody with a stress injury, stress fracture, um, or even just a standard patient uh, who asks the question, should you be taking calcium and vitamin D? And if you live in Wisconsin, probably, uh, if you live in the South, you may uh, get away without having to be quite so diligent about supplementation. I want to change gears a little bit, because we've talked about a lot about how we identify and, and diagnose and clearly each of you is very in tune with this. And this is something you're thinking about on a daily basis, but this may not be something that a lot of orthopedic surgeons are thinking about except within fragility fractures in their elderly patients. So Andre, you're on the own the bone subcommittee. What can we do and what can own the bone do or other subspecialty societies do to try to get this message across and really make this more of a routine thought process as we're looking at, especially the younger athletic injury? Yeah, Alexander, that's a, <laughs> that's a, a loaded question. But I think that this podcast, for example, is a really great start. So I think that we fortunately have at our disposal now all of these outlets that we can really educate each other. We can educate our patients using media like podcasts, using social media to educate our colleagues and the people and athletes that we treat is incredibly important. And then I think, you know, one of the topics that we've been discussing within Own the Bone is that we really do need to expand this to more of our orthopedic societies, to the hand society, to our sports medicine society, to all of the societies that currently don't have a a huge foothold in the Own the Bone movement. I think that uh, it should be a part of all of our discussions and curricula and in educating our residents and fellows, uh, because as we've been discussing, it's a it's a really important and very prevalent issue throughout all subspecialties, including sports medicine, which is not typically one that we would have thought of. I'll go back to Tammy with what I hope is, is an okay question. You know, it's pretty easy for even someone like me to suggest taking vitamin D and calcium, but what's the role of the orthopedic surgeon and, and maybe a high level, uh, knowledgeable orthopedic surgeon like you guys versus someone who deals less commonly with fragility fractures in the, what I would call more designer drugs like Forteo and the higher level drugs. Is that something that you guys consider prescribing and managing yourselves? Or do you have partners at your institutions that you refer to for decision-making and, and management in that capacity? That's a great question. I I think we'll want to hear what Chris has to say after I talk, because uh, I think we've taken two different approaches based on our sort of practice types, which would speak more to the whole audience that way. So I'm in the academic medical center and I have a partner who's sort of nationally renowned for his expertise in treatment of osteoporosis. So it's super easy for me 
to defer to him. And I do generally send patients to him for treatment. We recently discussed, uh, should we be using Forteo in our athletes with bone stress injury, stress fracture? Is there a role for that? We've had athletes ask for it, you know, high level, a national contender with a stress fracture. Am I going to get over this faster if I take Forteo? You know, there's some evidence to suggest that I will, and there's anecdotal reports that I will. Our group of team physicians decided against it. It is, it's all anecdotal evidence at present. So we're not uh, using that in our young athlete population, but there are some who, who do use it. But in terms of prescribing those drugs, I think it's out of the purview of the standard orthopedic surgeon. And with that, I'll defer to Chris because she has more experience in that area with her own the bone program. Yeah. So we, we prescribe Forteo. So I have, I started a, a fracture liaison service in our practice. I'm still a sports medicine surgeon, but I wanted to contribute to my practice. And this was my project since 2006. So my time and took on a, a PA. So I have a PA that sees most of the osteoporosis patients and all the guys follow them our way. So we do, we try to do full service. So we do prescribe Forteo for our patients. However, even though there, I think there've been three studies that, that show that Forteo can improve fracture healing for a practical matter, it would be really difficult to prescribe that for an athlete because you know insurance coverage and that kind of thing, they would typically require not a diagnosis of osteoporosis, which most of our athletes don't have. So you could you could give your patient maybe samples or not to forget our master's athletes, you could screen your athlete for osteoporosis. And if they happen to have a diagnosis of osteoporosis, you could prescribe Forteo for them, particularly if they've had a fracture, any kind of fragility fracture, but a stress fracture I think would count. So if the patient had a DEXA score of minus 2.5 or less, and they had a fracture, you might be able to get that approved by the insurance and it would improve their fracture healing time, it would shorten it, and they would have a more robust and, and stronger callus formation. But I haven't prescribed it for any of our my athletes, um, because they're just too young and they don't have that diagnosis. You could prescribe a bisphosphonate for these athletes. So for example, we have some patients who have um, avascular necrosis of the hip or subchondral insufficiency fracture of the hip, but their DEXA score isn't abnormal, but they still could get um, a bisphosphonate to help prevent collapse and decrease pain. And that has, that's been improved by insurances. I, I think to have a, for a regular, <laughs> regular orthopedic practice, probably you might not want to prescribe for it. It's pretty onerous uh, with insurance approvals and monitoring patients. Once they do it, they're on their own and they do it for a year or two and then follow up with something else, but it requires, um, it's more like a primary care kind of setting. So where the orthopedics is a problem-based specialty and they have a problem and you solve it and they go away, this, you kind of inherit them and follow them over time. And that most orthopedic practices aren't really set up that way. And it's been a challenge in our practice because we're different than everybody else. We have a large group of, you know, 60 providers and we're the only, really the only one that's kind of following people over time and has to have yearly follow-ups. I guess maybe the joint guys do that too, but it's just a little bit different than a typical orthopedic practice would have. And it's a lot more onerous for medication approvals and things like that. I think that's really insightful. And Chris, maybe just to kind of piggyback off your experience, you know, you mentioned you started as a fracture liaison practice back in 2006. Uh, and that's really kind of one of the goals of the Own the Bone program is to help provide resources for groups to have a fragility fracture uh, liaison or follow these patients longitudinally. Maybe talk a little bit briefly about your experiences with that and 
how that's evolved over the last 15 years now and really kind of what the own the bone program has, has done to help with your younger patients as well. So this started out 2006 at that time mentioned I did some research in bone density with Tammy during residency, and I studied exercise and aging in a fellow research fellowship. And so I was interested in continuing this kind of work, but I wasn't sure how. And I kept going to kept going to osteoporosis foundation meetings that were in the DC area. And at one of the meetings, a person said, Dr. Cyrus said, if only our orthopedic friends would help us to get these patients treated for osteoporosis, we'd be a lot further along. And that's when I decided that I would try to be a link between our patients who are the high-risk osteoporosis patients and the people who we thought should be treating, which was their primary care doctors. So all I did in the beginning was figure out a way to flag our patients who had osteoporosis, who were 50 and over, who had a fragility fracture. We we ran a report using ICD-9 codes at the time. Every week we ran a report. If they're over 50, we sent a letter to the patient and the primary doctor and said, could you please evaluate and treat this patient for osteoporosis? And we did that for a couple of years. And then we looked it up and we presented a poster at the academy, actually, that it really wasn't that good, that most of the primary doctors were too busy or not interested or didn't really believe it was that important. I decided I'd just do it myself. <laughs> so that we'd order the DEXA scan. And, that, and I actually was able to get the confidence to do that because we weren't I wasn't classically trained in that. There's an educational teleconference every week called Bone Health Echo. So anyone who's interested in osteoporosis or bone health, it's a terrific way, these echo conferences, and you could look it up, and to have access to national experts. And you could present your cases to these people and in a didactic every week. And I expanded my knowledge about it enough that I felt confident that I could treat them myself. And then um, we sort of little by little tried to treat more and more patients and still have my surgical practice. And so decided to take on a PA. And once we took on the PA, she sees most of the patients. She saw over 2000 patients last year. And the reason she is busy and able to do that, I think is because for the past 15 years, every, because we're a community practice and, and we know that the most of the successful programs have residents, they educate their residents, like Andrea mentioned, and send them out to the community. And those residents refer back to the program. So we didn't have residents, but we had staff. So we continually would educate our staff, our colleague, our primary care doctors, our OBGYNs, our my, my colleagues in orthopedics about osteoporosis. We would do, I don't want to say marketing, but for like, this is osteoporosis month. And we always have calcium rich treats out there every May. We always, we do lectures and put up posters and it's part of our culture that people are interested in bone health. And so a secretary might be checking a patient and say, hey, doc, you forgot to refer them for this osteoporosis program. And so it's been able to grow the program. And my PA who attends these echo conferences is very knowledgeable and she's terrific. Joining Own the Bone is something I actually, to be honest, hesitated to do in the beginning because we didn't have the staff to enter the data. It was like a lot of extra work for us. But once we did it, we were able to benchmark our performance to other programs around the country. And it really helped to sell the program to our administrators that wanted to support the program and help fund a PA, for example. And we're going to now get a nurse, I think, to administer some of the medications. And that's been um, sort of legitimized our performance and really has made a big difference. And also there's all kinds of resources available through Own the Bone if you want them. And then there's also this collegiality. So once in a while, someone will call up and say, hey, how do you do this? Or I want to start. And it's a great way to network and get to know people and their challenges. Thank you for sharing your experience. And thank you for mentioning the ECHO program. You know, Own the Bone has an ECHO uh, once a month for those in the AOA who are participants. So that can be helpful for all of the listeners. I guess we should probably 
look to close and maybe what would be helpful is starting with Andrea, give us your parting shots, what you want the listeners to take away from this and what you hope all of us who may not be as focused on these diagnoses to do and think about differently moving forward. Yeah. So, you know, I think one of the big takeaways for me is as somebody who has progressed through training in medical school, residency, fellowship, and then into early years of practice, this is really not something that many people talk about, especially in our field of sports medicine. And so I think as Chris shared with us her experience, it takes some extra work, but I think it's worth it for the benefit of our patients and for those who we are training. So I think even though it's a very complex topic, I think using these resources like ECHO and talking with colleagues like Chris and Tammy who have expertise and experience in this will really benefit our patients and our field as a whole. Thank you. Tammy? Thanks. I think my take-home message would be Uh, that the bone is a living organ, just like our heart or our lungs or our pancreas. And because we're orthopedic surgeons, we should take care of it. It begins when we're babies and it has to last us our whole life. I've dedicated my research life to how can we make bone stronger based on childhood and adolescent uh, exercise participation, which was the only tie-in that I had with sports medicine. (laughs) but I think it's an important tie-in and I think it's really crucial that as physicians, we remember that that organ needs to be cared for as well. And if we can teach our patients, even just a little bit about thinking about the bone and how to keep it healthy so that you can stay walking and talking and moving as a elderly person, but also through your entire life, then I think we've done a service to even, even every patient that we meet, if we think about a little way that we can interact with them regarding the bone. Thank you. And Chris? Um, Well, yeah, first of all, thank you for having this podcast. It's really great to talk about this and I had the opportunity to speak up. And I would agree with what my two colleagues have said. And also that to remember that if you, that your patients, I think would really will appreciate this. Patients appreciate kind of a holistic approach to their injuries. So if you diagnose someone with an ACL or stress fracture and you look a little bit deeper into possible causes and then take that information to the rest of their family, it really will improve you as a doctor. And I think it also will bring patients to your practice uh, because they respect you and they realize that you care about their whole health of them and their family. And you don't have to be on your own. So anything you don't understand, you could always refer to a subspecialist, endocrinologist, GI, primary doctor, physical therapist. (laughs) It's a team approach. So thank you all. And just just for our audience, uh, we've had the pleasure of learning from Tammy Sherpella, Chris Morganti, and Andrea Spiker. You guys bring a wealth of experience and knowledge, and we're all better off having learned and listened to you. So thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all very much. 